0: This is the Olive Magazine podcast, a weekly roundup of food and drink chat to you brought by the team behind Olive Magazine and this is episode 103. I'm Janine, Olive's food director and podcast host. So this week we've got digital editor Alex who went to catch up with Max and Noel Venning, the brothers behind cocktail bars Three Sheets and Bar 3. She went to learn all about bottle cocktails, why we should be making them and got some really good fun easy cocktail recipe ideas. I then have a chat about the Tregothnan Estate in Cornwall which has grown the UK's only single estate tea and then in the last section of the podcast travel editor Rhiannon tells us why Oman is a bit of a hidden gem for foodie travellers. So let's just kick it off with Alex and those cocktails.
1: it's alex here and i'm at bar three in spitalfields with owners max and noel venning these manchester born brothers opened their first bar three sheets in dalston back in 2016 and have since expanded the brand to open a fancy basement (coughs) bar below blix and restaurant max and noel have also just released a fab book about pre-batched cocktails called batched and bottled and we're going to have a bit of a chat about pre-batched cocktails so hi guys
2: hello Oh, yeah.
1: um so what made you decide to write a book about bottled cocktails
2: um so shortly after we opened three sheets, we were approached by um a publisher to to do a book about bottled cocktails in specific and we we thought we thought about it and we talked to them and then we thought actually sort of batching and bottling is something that 's more relevant maybe um, to definitely sort of the 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 cocktail industry and in bars and you know, these days most bars will will batch stuff and, and they'll pre-bottle stuff to make service quicker, faster, easier. Um and, and with our conversations with the publisher, we we looked at the way people sort of make cocktails at home. And it's a bit of a pain in the arse, uh, especially if you've got a few people around, you have to make a few drinks, you don't have the equipment, you know, you don't have the, the setup. Uh, you've got a sink and some shakers and some dodgy ice. Um, and it never really works. And also you, you're meant to be entertaining, right? And, and the whole point in setting up a bar properly... Is that you can entertain your guests as they come in, and it's the same at home. So we wanted to write a book where you could get the prep done beforehand, like we do at the bar, like most people do at most bars. Um, so that when your guests arrive, you're simply like I, I, I know, pouring it into a glass, or pouring it over ice, or pouring it over ice and topping with soda. But it's something very, very simple, so you can enjoy your evening rather than worrying about you know making twelve drinks with one shaker.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, cause there's a lot of times when you know you get your friends round for cocktails and you suddenly think, "Hang on a sec. I can't actually join in with the conversation because somebody's making cocktails and but it's usually fun but not actually very good cocktails. <laughs> Um, so in our trend report at the beginning of this year, we noted that pre-bottled cocktails were becoming a bit of a thing. So Tony Canigliaro has been serving his punchy pre-bottled Negronis at Bar Termini in Soho since 2014. So have you seen this trend emerging or has it always been something that you do?
2: So the Negroni's been going from from Termini and that's, that's definitely sort of helped kick off the trend. Uh, Tony was bottling cocktails like... I don't know, a Rocker, maybe a long, long time before that. And I know a lot of people have have experimented with bottled cocktails and and we had the whole kegging phase where we'd put cocktails into a keg and sort of taste that. But it's definitely on the rise, but I think it's more on the rise in terms of uh, as the competition grows and as... um, as cocktail culture has become more and more mainstream is people are just looking for different ways of serving drinks and bottling cocktails is one of the ways where you can you know pique interest um and it's definitely with the French 75 in the bar you know which is like pre-bottled and carbonated and poured as a glass of champagne is it really gets traction and it's just another delivery method really um and at home it's at home it's great as well because it's something that you can do when you have time and you don't need to think about at that moment. You know, the martini in the book or the old-fashioned in the book is a great example of where, you know, you can do it on a Saturday afternoon or a Sunday afternoon when you've got nothing to do. You get home on a Wednesday night and you've had a really shit day at work. You just pour it in a glass and you have that relaxed moment and, and, and that's why I think it's relevant. But it's definitely a trend that's growing, but I think it's, it's part of just a growing culture of cocktails as well.
1: And which other bars across the country do a great pre-bottled
3: co- cocktail? Well, I think the the bar that got the biggest, like, recognition for pre-bottling cocktails was White Lion, that was recently changed into Superline, where they had everything pre-bottled and pre-diluted uh, in, in an attempt to increase sustainability and reduce the waste. But like you mentioned before, with Tony at Termini, uh, other bars have started following suit, uh scout do a lot of pre-bottled stuff because they ferment a lot of their own ingredients
1: where's scout
3: scout is in shoreditch just up by old street not far from us just up the road at Com- up commercial street um uh, yeah and then you've got other places uh, that i know that like pre-bottle martinis like every cloud in hackney uh mint gun club do a lot of pre-bottling because they, they they use fresh citrus in any of their cocktails to promote sustainability as well um so yeah it's it's Gaining a lot of traction, like Max said, and bars are, are running with it and using it as a way to not only make their lives more simple, but then try and increase their, their their sustainability output and not use as much fresh ingredients and reduce the waste they're doing.
1: And so if we wanted to start making our own pre-batch cocktails at home, what equipment should we get hold of to start? So I'm brand new at this. What do I need in my kitchen?
2: Um, I think... F- Something to measure with, whether it's scales or or a jug or both would be ideal, but most people have that anyway. Um, And then you you need sort of bottles to store it in, sterilized bottles. There's a few ways of doing that. We go through that in the book. The same way you'd sterilize a jam jar if you made jam. Um, And then that's about it, really, because you can go from really simple, you know, bottled cocktails. We've got a Yuzu Negroni in the book, or you can just do a normal Negroni, which is just a mix of three spirits just kept in the fridge, in a bottle which is great Um, and then if you want to do something a little bit bit more fun everyone well everyone has a cooker or a hob at home and then we just say like a, a funnel and a coffee filter and you can produce some really really great stuff you know top level drinks that you would expect to get in a bar but you can do it at home you don't need a lot of fancy equipment
1: and you, you touched on sterilizing the bottles. I know this is probably, you go into this in more detail in the book, but do you have three quick tips for now about sterilizing?
2: Yeah, I mean, the, the, the easiest way to do it is to buy like a, a food grade bottle sterilizer from um, like a home brew shop. So people who make their own beer have to sterilize the bottles, obviously, because you get yeast on the inside. So that's the easiest and safest way to do it. And that's the one that I would say, you can go down the, the jam jar cooking them in the oven. But I, th- I reckon you're, you're safer off just getting the, uh, the professional stuff.
1: So you cook jam jars in the oven to sterilise them, is that right?
2: <laughs> my mom, my mom, our mum does, yeah. But, you know, we, we, I've not made jam in a long
1: time. <laughs> Neither <What>? have I. <laughs> um, so something that I think is often overlooked uh, when making cocktails at home, and usually it elevates a cocktail when you're in a bar, um, is ice. Because um, often it's served with these beautiful big cubes that are completely clear. Do you have any particular techniques to making your own ice at home? Because, um, yeah, rather than just having cloudy ice in the freezer.
2: Um, there's a few things with ice. I mean, with the baston and bottled idea is that um, you... The idea is you keep it in the fridge or the freezer so you don't actually need to get it much colder. You'll serve it over ice, so good quality ice is still important. Um, Clear ice is, like, lovely. Very, very nice experience. It's not completely necessary. It's more an aesthetic thing. If you want to have a go at doing clear ice, uh, the advice is to boil the water first before you freeze it, and then if you freeze it in, like, a a, a low-flat tray what you'll find is all the cloudiness will come to the center of the tray and then you can chop out blocks off the corner and you'll just have cloudiness in the middle. That's how we used to do it at a bar in Edinburgh 10 years ago maybe now, showing my age. <laughs> um But, yeah, that's uh, that's it. But you can now buy pretty decent quality ice and there's, you can order it online as well. There's great companies like the Edinburgh Ice Company who deliver around the country that are doing like amazing stuff with ice and you can order bespoke stuff so if you're having a dinner party and you want to do something extra special that's great um, but yeah if you if you've got the dilution right in the first place and if you've got the uh, the temperature right in your freezer then you know that that's the main part in getting the cold the, 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 the correct temperature cold drink served with the right dilution
1: cool thanks so um what are your favorite homemade ingredients? Um, to use in cocktails like syrups and bitters, etc. Do you have any signature syrups?
3: Uh, yeah, we do. We have a lot, and uh, they're all detailed in the book. But fresh juice is a really good one. So if you have a, a good quality juicer at home, and then you strain that off, and then you can make a, a really good cordial out of that. So add some sugar and and some acids like citric or malic. Uh, like I think Max is probably going to talk about. It this because he likes to drink the apple and rye but apple cordial in that is is outstanding and it's really good in the cocktail but on its own with just some soda it makes it like a really good homemade appetizer basically and it's a lot better than bought apple appetizer
1: so the apple cordial is that pressed apple is it is it pressed apple or is it apple juice or
3: uh, so yeah so it's apple juice so we would so we put the apples through a, a, a juicer and then strain it off through a coffee filter to get rid of all the sediment. And once that's done, then we add, I think, equal parts sugar or maybe just below and then balance that with a bit of malic acid, which is the main acid found in apple juice, just to, to balance the sweetness out. Uh, and then you get this great, great, great cordial.
1: And where can you find malic acid for someone like me? <laughs>
3: someone like you? So... uh Ironically, Wilko sell citric and malic acid, but I think you have to do it through their website. Uh, and that great website, Amazon, has pretty much everything you need for stuff like this.
1: Cool, thank you. Um, so, let's have a bit of a chat about the book because um, it's a beautiful book. And actually, we we started talking about this podcast because I was at Three Sheets um, just having the French 75 which I'm going to talk about in a minute um, and I saw this book and just it's just the best idea. The only thing is I want to make clear to everybody that it's not really complicated. I think a lot of people think, oh gosh, there's gonna to be tons and tons of ingredients. It's gonna be really, really difficult. Um, but there are some more simple recipes in there, aren't there? So which is um the most simple one to get started with?
2: So we've got oh so we've got the Yuzu Negroni, which is um which is really cool. So it's a, a recipe from Marcus Delzanis who who runs Sager and Wild, um over uh, in East London, so they've got two, and they're about to open a new place called Fair, which is going to be really interesting in Clerkenwell. Uh, but he gave us a yuzu negroni recipe, so it's using yuzu sake, um, which again, I mean, maybe this is a little bit long winded, but I'm going to I'm going to persevere with it anyway. Um, so that I think it's really funny. So the way we've written a book is actually probably more akin to a. a, a, a kitchen recipe book so a food recipe book so it's about process and it's about technique rather than just writing the ingredients and saying oh this you mix these together and have a cocktail which can put a lot of people off but it's really interesting because People reading cocktail, uh, food recipe books will go out and buy ingredients and they'll source them. But if they read a, a product like Yuzu Sake, they'll be like, well, where can I find that? It's impossible. I can't buy it in Tesco or Waitrose or Aldi or Lidl or wherever. But actually, Amazon or the internet is the, is the easiest thing. And because this is batched and bottles, so we're not saying, okay, at 5 o'clock on a Saturday night you need to go and buy these ingredients. You're making it on a Thursday or Friday evening for, for the weekend ahead. So you can source these ingredients. Amazon Prime is... Uh, is, a, is, a, is an amazing thing if you have a subscription because you literally get it like the next morning. So you can find these great ingredients and, and that's what I want to do with the book. But the, the yuzu new is great. So you just need to source the yuzu uh, sake and then you've got uh, campari and punty mez, which is quite a widely available bitter, and then sweet vermouth and gin. And then you just mix it all together in a jug or just pour it straight into the bottle and give it a shake, put it in the fridge or freezer and then whenever you need it, you just pour it over ice, add a slice of orange if you want, but that's great.
1: That sounds great and that's very dangerous in my house because we're a big fan of negronis and also yuzu so i can imagine having that in the fridge would be very tempting so yeah be careful before <laughs> making these pre-batch cocktails um and what is your favorite cocktail in the book do you think
3: so i think my favorite one is probably the and grape i think it's actually the fir- it's the first recipe in the book yeah it is yeah so it's it's just a, the recipe's really simple in terms of building the drink it's uh, Pisco, which is a South American grape spirit. Uh, and the one we recommend in the book is really light and floral, so it's not too intense. And then we make a homemade fermented rhubarb cordial. Uh, and the way we do it is basically we use some starter yeast from a company in Belgium and then add some water and bits of rhubarb to a mason jar and let it ferment for about a week. And then we strain it off and we make a cordial with sugar and acid. Uh, and then we just top those two ingredients with soda water so it's super simple super easy to make but it's it's really refreshing and and the rhubarb really shines through
1: yeah sounds great and also I've heard a lot about um I've I've seen a lot of rhubarb on um cocktail menus recently as well so um it makes a really good syrup and additional ingredient to kind of really brighten it um I think that's probably all we've got time for but um can you just let us know where we can get the book from
2: again the mag- the magical source of amazon i think is probably the best bet but also we've got a friend who's uh, set up a charity called healthy hospo so it's healthyhospo.com. com. and it, if you purchase it through there um it actually comes from amazon but amazon will make a donation to the charity so uh that'll make tim very happy but it's a really good cause
1: cool and also um i highly recommend you guys get down to bar 3 and 3 sheets because they have this very very addictive pre-bottled cocktail called french 75 is it yeah and Uh, It's served in a bottle, um, and it's absolutely amazing. So I think often people might think it's like a normal bottle of champagne, but, oh, no, it's not, and I'll let you come and find out for yourselves. So thanks so much, guys, and we'll get making some pre-batch Negronis, I think.
2: Thank you. Thank you very much.
1: Hi, it's Alex here, and I'm chatting to our travel editor, Rhiannon um so in the easter issue uh the intertravel feature focused on oman which you're not long back from visiting and you went there as a quick detour from dubai didn't you so how did they compare because i can imagine there's a lot of a lot of people might think that they're very similar but i can imagine that actually they're quite distinct
4: yes um Oman Oman was basically the flip side of the coin. Um, It's so close, but so completely different to Dubai. I went to a resort called Six Senses Ziggy Bay, which is in the Musandam Peninsula, about two hours' drive from Dubai. Um, And it's separated from the rest of Oman by the... United Arab Emirates. Um and it's just this brilliantly empty almost lunar landscape which felt very soothing after the noise and roads and concrete of Dubai.
1: Yeah, it looked pretty dreamy compared to Dubai. Obviously up
4: lovely as well. <laughs> yes, I mean it was built originally the Ziggy Bay was built um as a honeymooners resort, so it's really luxurious and private. Everyone stays in little villas strung out along the beach and they're really well equipped. So a lot of guests don't seem to leave their villa the whole time they're there. Um to reach it you have to do a bit of off-road driving through a goat-peppered wadi between dusty, gorgeous, kind of cinnamon-coloured mountains. Or you can come in by speedboat from a little from the border town of Dibba. Um, when the wadi floods, you actually have to come in by boat. Um, so it's remote and the beach is fabulous. I, actually, I wasn't expecting it to be quite so lovely, but it had that lovely fla- fine flowery sand and clear warm water. And because there's nothing else on that bay except a small fishing village, it's pretty empty. Um, so in fact the resort really sells itself on barefoot luxury it's not it's it's very um, luxurious but it's not blingy so a lot of people walk barefoot to dinner and each villa comes with um, pedal bikes that have little pads on the pedals so that you can cycle barefoot oh it sounds so lovely and dreamy (laughs) um but
1: so it looked beautiful but what was the food like? That's what we want to know in Olive, don't we?
4: Well, yes. Uh, that was the main reason I chose that resort. Actually, I love how the Six Senses resorts genuinely try to be environmentally and socially responsible, which still isn't all that common in the luxury market. Um, and in food terms, that means they're one of the few resorts in Oman that actively promote Omani food and try and grow as much of their own produce as they can, as they can, which is actually quite hard in the Gulf because so much has to be imported. Um, but the resort has recently taken over and expanded a farm about 20 minutes away and they grow all kinds of fruit and veg there. They keep bees for honey cows and goats for milk and cheese and chickens for eggs. The chicken coop is amazing. It's like a temple built in traditional Omani style with wood and stone. It's absolutely beautiful. Um, But they also have a really oasis-like kitchen garden at the resort itself where the team grow water, spinach and broccoli, lemongrass, sweet basil, crab apples, beetroot, tomatoes, marrows, flat-leaf parsley and herbs, garnishes, all sorts of other things. Um, And date palms are everywhere throughout the resort and their fruit is used in everything from date smoothies to these gorgeous little pastries that were on the welcome tray when I arrived Um, and then of course there's local fish they buy mainly from the fish market in the nearest town but also from the local fishermen and the head chef Tim Goddard told me that an Aussie has cleverly set up the first oyster farm in the GCC nearby so they have plans to do boat trips where you go swimming or snorkelling then sit on the beach eating oysters with a glass of champagne Um, but they like to arrange tailor-made experiences for guests so if you want to visit the market or the farm they'll happily set that up for you and I really recommend it Um, also if you want to barbecue a whole local fish on the terrace of your villa they'll come and arrange someone to cook it for you and clear away everything afterwards so Okay, there is a lot of
1: choice on in the resort itself. Um, what about restaurants, like local restaurants or other restaurants on site?
4: Um, there are three different main restaurants. Um, being so close to Dubai with all its international flights, they obviously have guests from around the world. So they do some really interesting things. I mean, the breakfast they have Chinese. Congee for, for breakfast alongside pastries and made to order omelets and shakshukar and Indian breakfasts and fresh pancakes. Um, and then for lunch, they um in the main restaurant they have salads and grills and fish dishes, um, as well as a poolside restaurant that serves um Italian and Arabic small plates. Or you can join an Arabic cookery class and then cook your own lunch. That's what I did. And you sit down to eat it in the Spice Market restaurant, the the main. I mean, I'm saying main restaurant. It's still quite casual. Um, and I cooked, I made fattoush, that lovely Middle Eastern sumac sprinkled salad with pomegranate molasses. Um, and a fish dish, and then this lovely Arabic twist on bread and butter pudding called Um Ali, which um, <laughs> it's, which means Ali's mum. And so apparently you get it all over uh, different versions of it all over lots of Arabic countries. And it's it was I made it when I got home, and my family loved it. But it is like a really delicious bread and butter pudding. The, this variety was very clever because they used the leftover croissants from the breakfast buffet. Um, because they're big on sustainability, to cook it with that, which was really nice.
1: We actually have an amazing pan of chocolate, bread and butter pudding on olivemagazine.com, just FYI. It is so good. When you said that, I was thinking, oh, yeah, it's so delicious. So,
4: yeah, just as a side note. <laughs> <laughs> I can totally imagine that, actually. I'm going to go and look that up. Um <clears throat> But in the evenings, it's when the restaurants really come into their own at um, Sixth Sense of Ziggy Bay. So they've got the, the really kind of blowout restaurant is up on a mountaintop just overlooking the bay, and it's called Sense on the Edge, and it's a fine dining restaurant, and you get shuttled up from the hotel reception. Um, I didn't eat there, but I went for a cocktail at sunset, and it was just a gorgeous location. Um, and but And then the there is a kind of i don't i i don't really like to say buffet because it's so much more than that and i'm not one for hotel buffets <laughs> but um it, it was nothing like you might imagine from that so um the there's a kind of ottolenghi style smorgasbord of arabic salads and lovely grilled lamb and grilled beef um they also have um a, another restaurant called the summer house which does more I suppose Mediterranean food, salads, burgers, pasta, grilled fish. And then they do all these pop-up dining experiences like seafood barbecues on the beach. Well,
1: it sounds like you're eating the whole time. I think I come back about three stone heavy after a trip
4: there. I think I did. Um, but it's also really, Six Senses is also really big on wellness. So it also attracts people who want to spend their holidays sleeping well and going for walks along the beach and most guests actually don't overdo it and especially not on the alcohol front because it's so expensive and I mean a glass of wine costs more than a bottle back home Um, uh, and also you can also go to their spa and get a whole kind of wellness screening and then depending on what you need whether you seem to be someone who needs more sleep or um, you want to go really big on fitness they'll design a program for you and all the choices that you should take are highlighted subtly on the menus throughout the resort. So I imagine you stuck to your (laughs) (laughs) programme? I tried absolutely everything going, of course. Um, The real highlight for me, though, was the Shua Shack, which is a beachside restaurant that opens only twice a week, and you walk along the beach under amazingly bright stars, and then you sit on low cushioned seats and you listen to the waves crashing as you eat. Um, And they just have a set menu again very Omani influenced so you start with salads and dips and then you're all brought over while the chef kind of starts digging in the sand and then suddenly he flips up this lid and it's a it's a kind of pit a cooking pit in the sand where this lamb that he's already marinated for 24 hours in olive oil and date syrup and Bay leaves, onion, garlic, carrot, cinnamon, anise, cumin, and rosemary, and then it's been wrapped in banana leaves and foil, and then it's been cooked in this underground pit for seven hours. <laughs> so it's quite something when he brings it out, and it's so it falls apart so much you you he can hardly get a knife into it without you know it's beautiful, um, and then that comes served with buttered saffron rice with pistachios in it and cashews and cardamom. You can basically eat as much as you like
1: <laughs> well, wow, that sounds horrible <laughs> um, well, I think we all want to go there now, um, so yeah, if you want to find out more information about um rihanna's trip she's done a great in-depth review of six senses ziggy bay on OliveMagazine.com, and also um as always we often do an olive eats at uh, the location on instagram so you can you know comment and interact with us so check out hashtag olive eats oman on instagram uh, so thanks rihanna for tempting us all with oman <laughs>
0: So I'm here with Sarah Orme, who's digital editor of In the Moment magazine. Welcome, Sarah. Oh, thank you. She's one of our um, sister magazines based in Bristol. And you've come all the way to London today to talk to us about tea.
5: Yes, my favourite subject. Yeah,
0: and it's not just any old tea; it's Cornish tea.
5: Yeah, I mean that's particularly special to me because I'm a I'm a Cornish girl. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a big fan of Cornwall as well. Yeah, so I'm always keen to to give the home county a bit of a. So I was really plug. surprised to hear
0: that there's actually a. Plantation in Cornwall. How did it, how did it come about? Where is it for uh, to begin with?
5: Um, it's a few miles outside of Churro on the oh. Trigothanen Estate, which is basically one of the the big old Cornish country estates. So, oh. if you're a fan of Poldark, you will have heard I oh, mention, of them. Yeah, <laughs> you will have heard them mention Trigothanen. Okay, um, because it's sort of it's been there a, a long time, um, and so. It's got quite a sort of long history of gardening in particular. Yeah. Um, the estate's not far from Falmouth, so it used to be when the sailors came back from oh. overseas that they'd have all these samples of plants. So they bring in new and plants. They would, and they would bring them back to Drogothnan. Yeah. Um, and so they've got quite a lot of uh, camellia plants. Yep. At And you might know that the tea plant itself is actually a camellia. I didn't know so that, to my shame. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. It's, it's not that common knowledge. I'm yeah. just a tea obsessive. Um, so it's Camellia sinensis is the, the type. So in the ni- 1990s, 99, I think it yeah. was, um, Jonathan Jones is their head gardener. Yeah. He thought, well, you know, we're, we're growing camellias here. They grow really well. I yeah. wonder whether Camellia sinensis would here too. It's a bit of a leap, isn't it? Was he a big T fan as well? I'm sure he must be, uh, <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> because um, I think one of the things that, that I was reading about is that it's got a I, I know, because I'm a huge fan of Cornwall, I go there a lot. It has got a particular climate, which is kind of misty, missly. Cornish mizzle, we call it, don't we? Kind of a, mist, a oh, cross between y- yeah. mist and drizzle. De-
5: definitely. And that's,
0: and that's good for tea.
5: It is, yes. Um, I mean, if you consider Cornwall's also got vineyards as well. Camel Valley is course, quite a well-known yeah, that's true, yeah. um, vineyard there. These same kind of conditions, which are good for wine, are also good for tea. So the tea plants really like this sort of mild damp <laughs> damp climate okay. it doesn't get too many frosts in Cornwall no. so it's perfect for tea and they've, they've planted them in quite a special
0: way haven't they because you visited the, um, the plantation so they're, so they're kind of split into little pockets of planting, so yes. disease if it does hit one it can't travel to
5: yes they, they did to say to me that they, they haven't had any incidences of disease but they've had got this set up precisely to avoid that kind of problem um, and to protect the crop. Yeah. Um, although they do have another threat to the crop, which is deer. Oh, yeah, I was
0: thinking about <laughs> that.
5: That must be, the, like, the craziest kind of, like, animal threat. Yeah, so they have a deer farm nearby, and they've yeah. got a six-foot-high fence, <laughs> and the deer will literally jump over this fence to get to the tea, and they love it. They get a bit of a kick out of the I was going to say the they tea. get a bit of a little
0: caffeine buzz from uh, the tea. Who can blame them, yeah. really? <laughs> but, like, six-foot jump is pretty impressive, right? It, it, it is impressive, yeah. yeah. And... I guess it's quite a precious crop. Like, how is it, how is it harvested? Because I think that they they make several different types of tea out of it, don't they?
5: Yeah, I mean, they've got quite a few different varieties because when they first started doing this project, you know, people obviously were quite excited about it, especially yeah. overseas, and they said, oh, we'll send you tea plants, you can try this. Um, oh, you mean so the varieties have come from all over the world? Yeah, That's yeah. That's amazing. So they, they are always, like, testing out new types of tea there, basically. Yeah, um, yeah. people are quite intrigued to see yeah. how they're doing it and to t- send over new ones to try out. And, and
0: tell me about the harvesting because I think... Um I mean, I've I've tried white tea before, and that's particularly expensive, isn't it? And I think, is that the first leaves that you pick off the top of the tea? Yeah,
5: basically, it's sort of like the newest shoots. So um, there aren't many of them. They are quite hard to find. Um, So Bella, who gave me the tour there, she did show me how they pick the tea. and We'll actually have a video of that on our website, which you'll be able to see. Um, So generally, for normal tea... They pick the newest shoots that are on the top, which is sort of a pale green. Right. But if you open up those shoots and look inside, you're looking for like for a little pale tip. And not all of them have that. So wow. it's actually quite a hard <laughs> job to find these little tips to make the white tea. So I can understand why it's so expensive now. Yeah, yeah, and it's all hand-picked as well. So you can't kind of go and just put some kind of mower along the top yeah. or anything and Yeah. just get it all off that way it has to be done by hand
0: and then once the white tea is harvested what's the next step to kind of harvest in the tea is it literally just then the rest of it goes to make black tea
5: yeah yeah so I mean but it's only the newest shoots that you you can use so they try and keep the tea plants sort of at waist height yeah just to make it easy to pick Um, but after that they go off and basically have to be dried out to oxidise them to make black tea. Yeah, um, and that's all done on the estate. It's all quite small scale. Yeah,
0: I mean, what? Yeah, I was going to say, what kind of scale is is kind? Are we looking at? I mean, do they do they sell the tea, or is it just produced for the estate? Or?
5: No, no, they sell the tea. It's um, It's available, well, quite widely in Cornwall, but, you know, you could order it online as well. Um, They've also actually made a special one for Eurostar. Okay. Which um, Raymond Blanc helped select himself, where they've smoked the Smell Grey tea with Manuka. Oh, wow. With Manuka leaves, and so it's got, like, this really fragrant smell, and it's quite a a mild flavour, but... um, it's quite pleasant, and you, it's best without milk, I would say. Is that like Manuka honey? No, yeah. no, it's the leaves themselves of the Manuka plant.
0: Oh, so Manuka honey's made when the bees go and eat the pollen yeah. and then go and produce the honey from the... Yeah, oh, I, I think so. Nice. <laughs> that sounds like a really lovely tea. Yeah,
5: they do a Manuka leaf tea as well, which is, is really good. And do you know if they've got
0: any plans to kind of expand it, or they, are they just going to keep it quite sort of... Homely and within the estate, and
5: um, I think they are sort of expanding it in a sort in a piecemeal way. So, yeah. when a little pocket of land becomes available in the area, they're sort of acquiring it and just expanding in small bits. So, it's not it's not a huge enterprise sort of as yet, but it's gradually growing over time. Cool.
0: I mean, it's a really lovely example of of how um, because there's pictures in the magazine as well of the estate, how that sort of um, Gardening and you know, grows organically and becomes something that kind of that they can use on the estate and then sell to the local area as well. So it's quite a gentle way of introducing. Yeah, crops.
5: yeah, it's, it's quite special as well because if you to go there, you actually you can't just turn up and go in as a okay. member of the public because it's still owned by the same family, so it's a private home. Okay, um, but you can. So, you, visit. but you can visit if okay. you book a tour. They do tours. They do an open day, I think, once a year. Um, and you can actually also stay there as well. So they've got some little cottages that oh, you can nice. go and stay so in. You can get inside. Oh yeah, yeah. So you, so you could stay there and yeah. you can go and pick some tea. And you, you can
0: have your pull dog moment there. You
5: can yes, yeah. And um, you can't look around the house unfortunately. But if no. you do get a glimpse of it, it's it's very Downton Abbey looking. That's brilliant. So you can you can imagine that you're you're there.
0: Yeah. Um, oh, well, thanks so much for sharing all of that with us. Um, You're if, pe- if people want to find out more about it, they can go, as you said, online to is it calmmoment.
5: Yes, that's right. And you can also read more about Tregothnan in issue twelve, and that's out on the first of May. First of May, brilliant. Thanks very much, Sarah. And welcome. T-
0: thank you. That was the Olive Magazine podcast. If you liked this episode, please head over to iTunes and leave a review. We'd really love to hear from you. For more information on things in this episode, you can visit our website, olivemagazine.com. You can also pick up a copy of our new May issue, Out Now, or go download the app version. Bye for now, and we'll be back next week with more food and drink chat.